Can you remember last week's acronym? Hate. Jesus was calling us to hate. If we want to be his disciple and follow him, we need to hate even our mother and father, wife, closest friend. Um, But when Jesus calls us to hate, it's this kind of hate, isn't it? It's basically, I trump everyone all the time. Hate stands for he always trumps everyone. When it comes to choosing between someone and Jesus, he needs to be the choice every time. That's how we interpret that very difficult passage that we read last week with the youth. You know, you can't be my disciple unless you hate even your mother and father, even yourself. But hating actually means choosing Jesus every time above everything or everyone else. Jesus left heaven and gave himself 100% for me so that in this life I would offer 100% of myself to him as I follow him, journey him to heaven. Is that correct? Jesus expects my 100%. However, we understood last week that we will not be able to give Jesus our 100% this side of heaven because the world is so difficult, isn't it? It's almost as if everything is slanted, or most things are slanted, to stop us from giving our 100% to Jesus. And we learned a couple of weeks ago that John, the Apostle John, said that the whole world, we are the children of God, but the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That's why it is so hard from the moment you wake up, in your mind, in your body, whatever is going on, it's so hard to give Jesus 100% because it's almost as if the world is against it, the way it goes, even in the thoughts in your mind. But Jesus calls us as disciples to hate everything that gets in our way, to choose him, even above our own selves sometimes. Now, what Jesus is asking from us, he knows we're not going to be able to give us Give him our 100%. But what Jesus is asking of us, I believe, is that I make the decision to aim for that 100%. My heart's desire is I give myself fully to Jesus and that every time something comes against me, choosing him and following him, my heart's desire is that I will hate. I will decide he always trumps everything. That's my choice. But whether I do it or not, that's to be found out, isn't it? But I believe that Jesus wants us to desire to give him that 100%. And when we walk humbly with Jesus every day, with that desire, with that attitude, knowing whether I succeed or fail, his love for me does not change. Even if I've got really smelly feet. He's going to wash them, isn't he, if I ask him to. Even if I fail, knowing that Jesus' love for me does not change, and when I confess my sin, which was also prayed about, his blood washes me clean. That's the amazing confidence I have. What he asks of me? A heart's desire to give him that 100%. And when I mess up, when I fail, confess it. Name it for what it is. Receive his cleansing and forgiveness, and continue humbly each day to walk with him, desiring to follow him and choose him. And when we mess up, there to forgive us. Now as far as I can make out, Jesus does not consider salvation as you buy a ticket, you've got the certificate, 
and one day I'll see you in heaven. In my opinion of the scriptures, Jesus' idea of salvation is a daily walk with him that ends up in heaven. Is that right? And it's on this daily walk with Jesus that I'm supposed to be more and more acquainted with him. Is that realistic? Yeah? And thus, the more I become acquainted with Jesus along the way, the more and more I become like him as I behold him. Is that correct? Is that scriptural? Yeah. We're supposed to be transformed the more and more we gaze, behold him. I recently heard a, pre- a preacher describe... Thanks, Wendy. She sent me lots of uh, different messages. And I heard him describe how, since he became a Christian, he and the Holy Spirit have been working on making Jesus the centre of every part of his life. He described it as how Jesus was becoming more and more central to all that he was. His relationships, his marriage, the things he does practically, his work, his finances. Jesus was becoming the centre of those things. But he admitted that there's, Jesus is more central in some parts of my life than others. Can you experience that? I think it's Maynard. Is it Maynard who wonderfully likes to remind us that we are all a work in progress? Is that Maynard? Yeah? That's right. We're all a work. I say progress. Maynard says progress. But we are all a work in progress or progress. But I think the Holy Spirit wants to (coughs) emphasize this morning is that progress part of it. Are you and Jesus and your walk with him and choosing him, is there progress? And is there progress in every part of our lives? Is there a desire to let him be central to everything about us? Okay. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. wisdom. Now the fear of the Lord says God is always right. And God always knows best. We need to settle that, don't we? In order to trust him, we need to settle that. Now this is part three of our new series of discussing identity, gender, and sexuality. Okay? How do we, as individual followers of Jesus, and as a gathered church, a body of Christ, how do we respond to LGBTQ plus issues, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer or questioning, and plus means all the other things as well. How do we respond to those kind of issues, personally and as a church? Now, apologies for anyone who's frustrated at the scenic route I'm taking to get to the answers of what we really want to know. But I find that when you take the scenic route, There's so much more to learn on the journey. So hopefully we appreciate what we're learning on the way as well. All right. Okay, so where are we? So, last week we looked at Jesus calling us to hate. He always trumps everyone or everything. And in the first session we saw how we all need to approach this subject with humility and love. Which also is what we've heard spoken by tongue and by interpretation as well. However complicated, sorry, humility and love towards each other, realising that we're all in the same boat, we all desperately need God's grace, don't we? Mm -hmm. 
to be those who are working daily with Jesus on the plank in our own eye, as well as helping someone else with the speck in their eye too. We need to walk humbly and lovingly in this, with everything really. And also, in humility and love towards God, we need to approach this subject with humility and love towards God. However complicated sexual identity and LGBTQ plus has become in the world, we need to humbly really allow ourselves to go back to God's simple. Because it has become complicated, hasn't it? But actually, when we look at Scripture, it's not that complicated. It's quite simple. So we need to humbly yield to God's simple. So we looked at how God set his very good emotion in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested because it was finished. As far as he was concerned, job done. Plan set in motion. Okay? When it comes to God's design and pattern, job's done. Two, two, two agendas, sorry, two genders, male and female. Both made in the image and likeness of God, but both easily extingu- um, extinguishable. <laughs> both easily distinguishable by their biological makeup. That was God's simple, wasn't it? Adam and Eve knew it was a boy because it was a boy. No, no. God has given me a man. I've produced a man. Designed, created, and blessed by God was this new pattern, two genders, male and female, who were blessed and told to go and, um, go forth and multiply. And God saw what he made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning. That's the sixth day. Anything subsequent is man's addition to God's simplicity. It's how we go about working out what God is saying in this, really, isn't it? I think we can agree that what God set up was God's original plan. And what came after that, people have added to it. In roughly six and a half thousand years later, when God blessed Adam and Eve and sent them forward to multiply, we've managed to amass as many as 48 to 63 genders and sexual identities and counting, depending on which website you look at. So let's remind ourselves again of what God's symbol looked like before Adam and Eve chose to kind of reach beyond God's simple to choose the devil's complicated instead. So Genesis chapter 1. Turn to Genesis chapter 1, please. I, I think if the ministry team had, uh, had, had a bet as to whether or not you would have moved forward on... Johan's request. Johan would have been a rich man by now. Okay, Genesis. So, so well done, church, for listening to Johan and agreeing to come forward. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It says, So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Now what we read here, I think, is the first ever marriage ceremony. And this was probably the most wonderful and yet cheapest and easiest wedding ever. (laughs) Think about it. No need to buy Eve a wedding dress or rent a suit for Adam. They were happy being naked. No need to book airplane tickets 
because they're already in paradise for the honeymoon. No stress over the reception seating plan because they haven't got any awkward relatives to upset yet. And no cheesy best man jokes either. For example. Did you hear about the two spiders who got engaged? They met on the web. And what do you call those two spiders when they got married? Newlywebs. <laughs> Did you hear about the two cell phones who got married? The reception was terrific. <laughs> Did you hear about the two nuclear scientists who got married? The bride was radiant and the groom was glowing. <laughs> and it doesn't matter how many times a married man changes his job, he will always end up with the same boss. <laughs> Which is Jesus, isn't it? I, mean, I, don't know what, I don't know what you were thinking, but yes, he always trumps everyone. Anyway, let's go back to Genesis and uh, flick forward one chapter, Genesis chapter 2. And whilst you're doing that, if a man is in the middle of nowhere and there isn't a woman around, is he still in the wrong? <laughs> Okay, Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. The man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. So verse 24 begins with, That is why. What is why a man is united to his wife and becomes one flesh? Well, verse 23 says, Because a woman is taken out of man and created to be the sexual opposite to man, so that they can be joined back together as one flesh. So that is why there is marriage. Because God took the man, created the woman out of man, and then returned her back to the man as his other half. Physically, and spiritually. So that is what the Bible says is why we have marriage. A man and a woman coming together and rejoining, connecting back together as one. Two people of the opposite sex coming back together is why we have marriage. Did you know that we still in these days label electrical equipment with male and female parts? Do you know that? Yes. Yeah? <laughs> why do we label electrical equipment with male and female parts? Yeah, because they only, well, you've got to have a male and a female part to work together to make the connection. Okay? It's pretty simple, isn't it, really? Can you imagine if I rang up Apple and, well, actually, shall I ring up Apple now? Okay. A long way. A long way. Well, oh, hello. Apple, I have a problem. Please, can you help me? I cannot connect my earphone cable to my phone. Okay, Apple on the other end. Have you pushed the earphone jack into the headphone port? No, I can't push the jack into the hole because jack is actually a jill. <laughs> Your jack is a Jill? 
Yeah, for some reason, my earphones have a female end rather than a male end. Yeah, that's, that's not going to work. Um, you need to get the correct headphones or buy a female-to-female adapter. Oh, how about you send me a new iPhone that fits my earphones? I'm sorry, sir, but we only make our iPhones one way. All our models are designed to receive a jack into the port. So what you're saying is, I need to change my headphones or buy an adapter, but you are not going to change your design to suit me. Okay, thanks. Bye. I wonder what kind of conversation it would be like if we rang heaven and asked them to change the design because of my current sexuality. I wonder what customer services in heaven would kind of suggest. Would you indeed? God made the first woman out of the first man and brought them together and pronounced, for this reason, man will leave his wife, sorry, his father. (laughs) 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 For this reason, man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. The first marriage ceremony on earth would also lead to the first sexual union, which God describes as becoming one flesh. They were made out of one, they became separate, and now they're joining back together as one. Eve was created out of Adam, made from his body, and their one flesh union becomes kind of like a reunion in God's eyes, one flesh. And in their sexual union, these two distinct halves fit together, to form one flesh. And in doing so, also combine their counterpart biological bits and pieces to create offspring too. Now, procreation is not the sole purpose of marriage. As we see in the Bible, God's first instinct is, ah, man needs a helpmate, not just a baby machine. So, first and foremost, marriage is about partnership and coming together male and female to become one, but also it's about procreation. But if you can't have children, that doesn't make you any less married. Okay? Marriage is not just about having babies, although it is part of God's plan and design. Enjoyable intimacy and procreation all in one. Isn't that lovely? And God saw it was very good. And so did Adam. Did you know that God's design of marriage is also meant to be a later reflection of what Jesus would be with his church? Did you know that? You did that? Where are we going to turn to? Revelation? Well, yeah, before we get to Revelation, let's go to Ephesians. Because it does mention, doesn't it, Jesus and his bride in Revelation. But we're just going to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 verse 31. Paul is going to quote from Genesis. 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they, so that they become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So what Paul is saying is that marriage between a man and a woman is a reflection of the relationship Jesus has with his church. It too is a union of two different yet complementary entities. If you try and join a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, they cannot reflect the union of Christ and his church. What they reflect is church and church, or Christ and Christ. Let's quickly check out something else that Jesus adds about this marriage ceremony ceremony too. Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verse 4. Jesus replies, having been questioned about divorce. Jesus, someone else who's going to quote from Genesis. Haven't you read, Jesus said, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So in Jesus' opinion, when it comes to marriage, who is it that joins a couple in marriage? God. Marriage is a union of two people joined together by God. Now, according to Jesus, the same God who in the beginning created the male and female and said for this reason a man will leave the family and be joined to his wife and become one flesh. According to Jesus, God is still in the business of joining a male and female together and making them husband and wife. Marriage is God joining a man and woman together to become one flesh. Now from what Jesus says here, and from what God did and said in the beginning in Genesis, and from your knowledge of the rest of Scripture, realistically, could you ever imagine God standing over a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, and joining them together and blessing them and saying, go forth and be fruitful? Go forth and multiply Could we imagine, from what we know, it's quite a stretch, isn't it, of our imagination to consider that God would at some point in history concede that mankind has come up with a suitable alternative to what he's put in motion at the beginning. Actually, guys, you come up with something brilliant. You know, I'm happy to bless it. Crack on. I'll join you together and go forth and multiply It's a stretch of the imagination, isn't it, for God to do that. Some may believe that God moves with the times. Does God really move and change with the times, or does the times move and change from God? Earlier this year, you might have heard about the hoo-ha. The hoo-ha. The hee-ha. No. The hoo-ha. It is a word, I looked it up. You might have heard about the hoo-ha in the Church of England. Did you hear about the, some of the African bishops who said, we are not coming to this 
Lambeth Conference. Okay? What they were uh, protesting about was the fact that the Archbishop of Canterbury, who was hosting the conference, it was being hosted at the uh, Kent College, Kent University, and um, they invited gay bishops along. But what the real hoo-ha was about was that uh, they believed that uh, the gay bishops, these are gay and lesbian bishops, were also having or were able to bring their spouses along. And that's what they really were protesting about, that the Church of England, or the Anglican Church worldwide, would invite these spouses to join in as well. It turns out that the spouses of the gay and lesbian bishops were not invited officially by the conference. However, the LGBTQ plus community had some protests and eventually Kent, community, or Kent University said, look, we'll provide extra accommodation so that these spouses can come along. And the spouses actually took part as um, spectators in the conference. Now, a few years ago, the uh, African bishops had already protested about inviting gay bishops to the conference. The conference happens about, well, in the last 150 years, it's happened about 15 times. So in the years leading up to this conference, they were protesting about gay bishops being invited. But their spouses attending was like the final straw for these, these African bishops. So they, they said, we're not coming, despite Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, writing to them and saying, come on guys, let's all be unified. Come along anyway. And we want to hear what you want to say, but um, come along. But they refused. Uh, in the end, some 650 bishops and their spouses from 42 Anglican provinces in 165 countries gathered in Canterbury for the conference this July. This was the 15th such gathering in 155 years. And during the conference, about a dozen bishops, including those in same-sex relationships or marriages, and their spouses took part in a march on the university campus in support of LGBTQ plus inclusion. Now, what do we, as disciples of Jesus, make of this? Are these African bishops wrong to take such a stand? Never mind if spouses should be invited to a conference or not. Should Anglican bishops be married to people of the same sex? Should there be such a thing as a gay or lesbian bishop? Does Jesus call and ordain openly homosexual men and women to lead his church? And putting a, being a bishop aside, can you actually be a disciple of Jesus and practice homosexuality at the same time? So many questions. I'm so glad we're taking the scenic route. <laughs> now, did you hear about the Bob, the Bob, the Baptist Union of Great Britain hoo-ha? No. Well, around about the same time as the conference hoo-ha, there was a Baptist Union of Great Britain hoo-ha too. And what happened was, it turned out in 2020, the Baptist Union of Great Britain, which this church is a part of, had a letter written and signed by 70 Baptist Union of Great Britain members. Now, most of these members were, or are, ministers, Baptist ministers. And they wrote and signed this letter to the Baptist Union of Great Britain to ask for a conversation <coughs> around LGBTQ plus issues, but mainly what they wanted is for the Baptist Union of Great Britain to take out the bit 
that says marriage is exclusively for a male and female. Because these 70 Baptist ministers want to marry their same-sex partners. But currently, a Baptist minister cannot marry a same-sex partner without committing gross misconduct and losing their accreditation. So they want the Baptist Union to have a conversation to hopefully, in their eyes, agree to say, actually, we'll cut out that bit about marriage being exclusively for male and female so that you can then marry your same-sex spouses. What does the Baptist Union Great Britain do with a request like that? Well, this has been going on for two years, and they've just come out by... Excuse me, pardon the pun. They've just come out <laughs> by saying, we're in conversation. We acknowledge you've written us this letter. We acknowledge that 70 people is quite a number. We have to start speaking about this. It doesn't say we're going to change it, but we have to be in conversation about this. So watch the space. <clears throat> but what do you do? As a Baptist Union, what do you do when you get that request? It's a request to change your age-old understanding of scripture and basically say that marriage is no longer exclusively for a man and a woman. Has God really moved with the times? And the church needs to move with him. Or is it that the times have moved from God and the church should stick with God and resist the requests to change? Now, I'm assuming that we can understand where these 70 Baptist ministers and the gay Anglican bishops are coming from. I'm a Christian. I'm gay. I want to be married to the one I love. I want to be accepted by the church and live, live my best Christian life. Can you accept that? No. It's pretty much the same as me, apart from the gay bit. I could say, I'm a Christian. I want to be married to the one I love. I want to be accepted by the church and live my best Christian life. Is that fair? The only difference, I'm guessing, with a gay bishop is that they say, I'm gay. I'm a Christian. I want to be married to the one I love, and I want to be accepted by the church, and I want to live my best Christian life. Gay or not, the challenge facing every Christian, all of us, is that Jesus leaves us in no doubt that the best Christian life is far from have your cake and eat it kind of life. It's a, he always trumps everyone, everything, all the time. Even if it's something to do with myself, he takes precedence. I, I need to choose him if I want to follow him, Jesus says. It's a life of dying to yourself and living for Jesus. Is that correct? Scripture says, doesn't it? As we studied last week, we are to choose to desire Jesus above everything, even when it comes to something in ourselves that would lure us away from following him. Whether it comes from others, even our loved ones, or even ourselves, if it's saying something that's um, opposite or luring us away from Jesus, we need to choose him. The question is, is Jesus progressively becoming central to everything about you, including the way you conduct yourself sexually? If I'm someone who experiences same-sex attraction, does Jesus want me to run with it and have sexual relationships with some of the same sex? 
If it's apparent that Jesus says no, what do I do with that? Am I willing to deny myself in that area in order to choose Jesus instead? If Jesus is saying no, I don't want you to run with being having same-sex feelings and going and get married to someone with the same sex. Do you deny yourself in that area? And if I think that Jesus approves of me being homosexually active, then what scriptures am I standing on to confirm this? Next time, we'll see what God actually says about homosexuality and whether or not God does change with the times <coughs> and what Jesus says about our sexuality. Does he agree or disagree? But to close, I'd like to read something that I think Jesus said to me when I was journaling a couple of weeks ago. I think he said this. Now, this is not thus says the Lord and scriptures he didn't stand on, but it's something that I felt Jesus witnessing to me. He said this. A willing heart is what I am looking for and can work with. A willing heart and not a stubborn, shut-down heart that has put up a sign saying, sorry, I'm not discussing this issue anymore. I need hearts that are always open to me on every front, willing to listen and wanting to yield. Even if they are struggling to yield and really battling with temptation, what I want is for them to have an attitude that continues to work towards fully yielding to my will. You don't have to have it all together, all 100% all the time, but an attitude of wanting to work with Jesus. The kind of attitude that I believe Jesus said to me, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You remember that guy in the Bible? I'm believing, but I'm struggling. Help me, Jesus. Rather than someone who has decided, this is not an issue for me anymore, and is no longer up for discussion, Jesus. You, Lord, need to accept me for who I am. I now come to you on my terms. I felt the Lord saying, oh, how sad, how very sad. If Jesus is truly our Lord, then nothing about us can be off limits to him. We can't shut any part of us down, even if it's our sexuality. We need to come to him and listen to him and yield to him. It's that hate, isn't it? No one can follow me unless they hate. Choose him, always. So, Let's carry on approaching this subject with humility towards each other, but also humility towards our Lord Jesus. Lord, you know best. You are what's best. And I might be struggling in this area, or I know someone who's struggling in this area, but Lord, what are you saying? I need to listen to you first and foremost. Help me with my belief, but really help me with my unbelief.